The football season recently started. College football started this past week. The NFL has been going preseason for a few weeks, and they'll start coming up soon. And there's a lot of anticipation for these coaches and these teams about what the season will bring, about how good they'll be. Will they make progress from last year? Will they repeat? They're evaluated based upon often their wins and losses, or they're evaluated upon their, their placement in the standings or the bowl games that they win. John Gruden, uh, an NFL coach, said this about how they would be evaluated. You've got to get to the Super Bowl. You've got to win the Super Bowl. That is the only evaluation that matters. How would you like to be judged on that basis? All or nothing. Maybe you have been judged that way in your own employment. All or nothing. It's got to be the absolute best or we're going to come down hard on you. How many of you can remember your last employment evaluation? It feels fun like a root canal, right? It's not very fun. You feel scrutinized. You feel vulnerable. Somebody's peering in on your performance, your attitude, your work. They are, they're judging it. They're sifting it to tell whether uh, it is good enough or where you need to improve or where it has been good enough. But we should be aware, as invasive as that feels, you ain't seen nothing yet. On the last day, we will be evaluated by our words, by our actions, by our very thoughts, considering how we lived. Did we live for the glory of God? Did you live according to the purpose for which you were created? You were created to glorify God. And what will your evaluation be on the last day? We'll come back to that, but we recognize in our passage in John, in the broader context, Jesus, in a sense, has already received this evaluation from his Father. Just a few verses back, Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. And a booming voice comes from the clouds and says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. In other words, the Father endorsed completely everything that the Son, Jesus Christ, did. He lived perfectly for the glory of God, the way all humans should live. And in following the plan of the Father, He was going to be sacrificed for the sins of His people. Lifted up was the words. And this is where we see the glory of God on full display. In the lifting up, of the Savior Jesus Christ to die for sinners. He has received his evaluation from God the Father, but in our passage today, he receives a different sort of evaluation as John is closing out this part of the book of John. We could consider that there are kind of two books in the book of John. There is the book of glory, which entails all of Jesus' ministry and teaching, and this concludes that book, the book of glory, uh, excuse me, the book of signs, as Jesus demonstrates that he is the Messiah. The second book is the book of glory in which Jesus begins his hour, the suffering and death that he would undergo for the sins of the world. 
And as John closes out this, this book, he gives a, a review of Jesus' life and ministry. He gives a review first of the response which Jesus received. And then he gives a review of Jesus' teaching. What is, it, what is the message that Jesus proclaims? So we have these two main headings. What is the response that the people had to Jesus' ministry? And two, what was the message that Jesus proclaimed? We'll look at the first in verses 37 to 43. An evaluation of Jesus' ministry. What was the response of the people? And we see it right off in verse 37. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Consider the book of signs, all the signs that Jesus performed. He turned the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. He healed the sick. He, he spoke and told people to pick up their mat and walk. People who were lame, who hadn't walked in years, and they stood up and walked. He gave sight to the blind. People saw that and still wouldn't believe. He turned a few loaves and fishes into a huge feast for thousands of people. He did all of these things, and as his final act his final sign he raises someone from the dead now we believe we see we see all that you can do and we believe that you are the son of god no they still reject him and want to put him to death all the more and they want to kill lazarus too he does all these signs and they reject him well then you're thinking what's the problem then why aren't they they buying what he's selling you might think of a salesman who is going door, door to door and he falls flat on his face. He can't sell a single widget of all the widgets that he has. And you start trying to evaluate, well, what's the problem? Why can't he set, make the sales? Maybe it's a problem with the product that he has. Maybe it's not a good product, so people aren't buying it. Or maybe the salesman is not very good. He doesn't do a good job presenting this widget in a way which would be appealing to other people. And we might consider that with Jesus. We might look back upon Jesus and his ministry with our American ideas of success and say, what's the problem? Why have you failed to bring people along with you? Why don't people follow you? And John answers us. Though he had done many, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In other words, this was a part of the plan. This did not take God by surprise that Jesus was rejected, that people didn't believe in him by and large. It didn't take Jesus by surprise because he knew the word of the Lord, which was spoken by Isaiah. And we could say, in a sense, Isaiah wasn't surprised because he spoke the words and he was speaking of Christ. They didn't believe so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And what was that word? Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now this comes from Isaiah chapter 53, verse, verse 1. And in the larger context, Isaiah is speaking of the coming salvation of the Lord, 
which would come through a person in particular. A servant. The servant of the Lord. The suffering servant. Who has believed what he has heard from us. Virtually no one has believed. Why didn't they believe? Well, you could go down chapter 53 of Isaiah 4. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. They did not believe him. They rejected him. Even though Isaiah prophesied of Christ, they rejected him. Notice the second part of this quotation. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Virtually no one. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To be revealed means to draw back the curtain, to let us see what is true and real. To whom has the arm of the Lord, the power of the Lord, been revealed? And to this, I think the anticipated answer is to no one virtually. Now, in a sense, we could say that God reveals himself to everyone by his goodness, by his creation. He reveals himself to everyone through the preaching of the gospel. The people here in the book of John, God had revealed himself to the people, by Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. There's the revelation. There's the perfect and complete revelation of God, Jesus Christ, standing before you. And yet, in another sense, we would say, there's another sort of revelation which is needed for people to come to faith in God, to come to faith in Jesus Christ. There's an outward visible revelation, and then there is an inward, invisible revelation which is needed for someone to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Why haven't they believed? Because the arm of the Lord hasn't been invisibly revealed to them to their eyes of faith so that they could believe. This is what John goes on to say in chapter 12. Therefore, they could not believe. Therefore, looking back to the quote from Isaiah 53, therefore, they could not believe. This speaks to their inability to believe. They're so, they're so deadened spiritually. They're so blinded spiritually. Hard-hearted against God in their rebellion that they could not believe unless God revealed himself to them. He goes on, For again Isaiah said, and he quotes again from Isaiah, this time Isaiah chapter 6, verses 10 and following, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Go back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Notice in verse 8, this is, this is after the Lord had revealed himself to Isaiah. He saw the Lord high and lifted up, holy, holy, holy. He's cleansed. He recognizes his own sin as he stands before the glory of God. And he knows he needs to be cleansed. He's cleansed. And then he hears the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. 
And he said, go and say this to my people. In other words, this is the message that you are to proclaim to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. In other words, it's a message of judgment that you're, you're not going to hear, you're not going to see, you will not understand, you will not turn, and you will not be healed. It is a message of judgment. One reason is because of the history of the Jewish people. God came to his own, his own people. He rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And what did the people do each step of the way? They grumbled against the Lord and his anointed. They grumbled against the leader who led them out of Egypt. They grumbled at the Lord for not providing for them. Not only did they grumble, they turned to idolatry and to foreign gods over and over and over again. They stiffened their necks against God. They hardened their hearts against God. And the judgment will be, you will not hear, you will not see, you will not understand. Isaiah knows this is a a message of judgment. And he says, so how long will I preach this message? How long will I have to, to keep going? And notice in verse 11, the answer. Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terameth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. How long should I preach this message of judgment against your people? And God says, until it is all laid waste, until it is all torn down, until nothing remains except a little stump. And notice what the scripture says. The holy seed or offspring is its stump. In other words, take all all that remained of God's people they will be judged for their rebellion against him, for their unfaithfulness, for their unrighteousness. Tear it all down. It will all be laid waste until this one thing remains. The stump, which is the offspring, which is Jesus Christ. He is the offspring which was foretold at the beginning to Adam and Eve. Your offspring will crush the head of the serpent. He is the offspring of David He is the offspring of Abraham. He is the one who has come to fulfill all the prophecies. He is the Messiah. He's the offspring. He is the faithful and true Israel. He is the righteous one. He's the only one that remains. When when God evaluates the whole mass of humanity, Jesus Christ is all that remains. The rest deserve complete judgment. And notice what John says in verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus Christ and spoke of him. Don't you love how John shows us all of Scripture is pointing to Jesus? Jesus himself in John says, You look to Moses because you think in him you have life. But Moses wrote of me. He's speaking of me. He says of Abraham. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. He saw it and he was glad. 
And here he says, Isaiah saw the glory of Christ and spoke of him. Brothers and sisters, as we read the scriptures, let us, let us be reminded over and over again, it's ultimately not about our own moral perfection or ability or growth in holiness. It is about Jesus Christ and his work for sinners. It points us to Christ over and over again. It points us to our failure and it points us to his success. He is the holy and righteous one who has come to save us from our sins. You notice also in verses 42 and 43 of John chapter 12 that some did kind of believe in Jesus. Some even among the authorities believed, but there was something holding them back from from fully embracing Jesus Christ and it was that they loved the glory which comes from men rather than God. They were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue. They were afraid of a public uh, profession of faith in Jesus and a public commitment to him. Well, there are many applications we could draw from this section, this evaluation of Jesus' ministry and how people responded to him in unbelief. And the first would be this. It would be looking upon Jesus' work, his life in ministry. We cannot conclude that it was a failure. This was in line with the plan of God. This was the plan of God. That Jesus would be the suffering servant, despised and rejected by men, even though he is the holy and righteous one. This is God's plan. Without Jesus being rejected, there is no arrest of Jesus. Without Jesus being rejected, there is no beating. There is no suffering. Without Jesus being rejected, there is no lifting him up on the cross to be crucified for sinners. There is no resurrection. There is no ascension. There is no glorification. This was God's plan. Without the rejection of Jesus, you and I are still lost in our sins. He is the perfect Savior. It is because He was rejected by men that we are accepted by God. Not only should we see that in Jesus' life and ministry, we can make a further application to our own lives, in our own ministry. As we think about global Christianity, we might have a pessimistic view about how things are going. Is Christianity around the world shrinking or growing? Are we discouraged uh, about the growth or lack of growth of the church in America? We might begin to think, what is going on? What is God doing? Why why aren't more people coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Why are there so many people that are rejecting Jesus when it's so clear that He is the Savior? Well, God is sovereign over these things, and He is working His plan for His glory and the good of His church. And we could consider this in in the life of our own church. This, this passage really should cause us to reevaluate certain metrics that we have for success in the church. We can be so tempted to be a product of the culture in which we live to start making measurements of the church based on how we measure success in the world. Numbers, money, growth, How do we measure our success as a church? There is a 
a good book on this that I would highly recommend to you. It's called Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome by Kent and Barbara Hughes. They were overwhelmed by the pressure that was put on them to perform as a pastor and a pastor's wife. And they said, we can't do it anymore. They were trying to have success as measured by the world, and they couldn't do it. And so in this book, they list out some godly measures of success. And I'll just read them to you. And, and as I read them to you, think about your own life. How do you evaluate your own success or failure in this life? In your work life, in your home life, how are you evaluating yourself? They say this, success is faithfulness. Success is serving. Success is loving. Success is believing. Success is prayer. Success is holiness. And success is attitude. And you think, how do I measure those things? Well, that's why we often fall back into the default of using the metrics of this world to judge the church because they're so much easier to to read. They're so much easier to see. And yet we must recognize that God has a different perspective on what is success and what is failure. Well, one further application from this, this paragraph concerns those of you who are not Christians. Those of you who haven't come to embrace Jesus Christ. Maybe intellectually you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Like He is Jesus. He is God come in human flesh. He came to the world. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. Maybe you intellectually believe all those things and yet you haven't embraced Him by faith. In other words, you haven't relied upon Him to save you for fear of what your friends would think about you. Or because you love the glory of man more than you love the glory which comes from God. In a sense, you could say you are looking for a different metric to your own success. You're looking for the valuation that you get from your friends. And let me plead with you. Throw that out the window. Forget about your reputation. Forget about uh, what others think about you. And cling in faith to Jesus Christ. He is your only hope. Turn away from those vain ideas and commit in faith to Jesus Christ. Well, God is sovereign over all of these things, over faith, over unbelief over the rejection of Jesus, over our success. But we should notice that we are nonetheless responsible for how we respond to Jesus and his message. This is one of those difficult things to understand, that God is absolutely sovereign over every blade of grass and every drop of rain, over the salvation of men and women and children, and yet we are nonetheless responsible for how we respond to the message which is proclaimed. And this is what we see we, we see this highlighted in the message that Jesus gives to those who will hear him in verses 44 to 50. This is what we could say a summary message, a review of Jesus' message throughout his ministry. Notice that in verses 44 to 50. First notice, Jesus cried out this message. In other words, this wasn't just a cold and calculated 
message that he proclaimed, knowing people were going to reject it. He, cry, he cried out to those who were rejecting him. This is, this is a passionate plea to those who are rejecting him. Stop rejecting me. Come to me in faith. And we should consider as we speak the gospel message to others. Are, are we genuinely concerned for their souls? Do we just see them as a project or a way we can boost our own morale by, by saying that we evangelized this many people this week? Do we have a, a genuine care for people who do not know Christ? He cried out a passionate pleading for them to see and to come in faith to Him. And what is this message? I want to emphasize three things in this, this paragraph, in this message. Notice not only does he emphasize belief in him as the Messiah, but he emphasizes belief in him as the Messiah sent from the Father. See that in verses 44, 45, and 49. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And then verses 49 and following. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak and i know that his commandment is eternal life what i say therefore i say as the father has told me in other words jesus isn't just some sort of lone ranger he's not on a mission by himself to to save people he is a part of the trinity father son and spirit three persons one god and they are working together. He is working together in cooperation to fulfill this purpose. He, Jesus made it plain over and over and over again throughout the gospel, throughout his teaching. I do nothing apart from the Father. I do everything the Father tells me to do. I'm fulfilling this plan as a part of the mission which the Father has given me. He was prophesied from the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. From the beginning... This is the one of whom was spoken, and he has been sent from the Father to carry this plan out. Jesus' Jesus' message is that you must believe in him, and to believe in him is to believe in the Father. The, The reverse is also true. To reject Jesus means to reject the Father, means to reject God himself. So as we, as we consider the world religions, as we consider other faiths, this is one area where we, we have to conclude without Jesus, you have no real faith. You have nothing that's real. If you, if you imagine a game of Jenga, right? All these blocks that are hanging together, stacked upon one another. And if you push one out at the wrong time, what happens? Everything else crumbles and falls, you lose the game, you lose. Well, Jesus is that, that block. He is the linchpin. If you remove him from your ideas of who God is, if you remove him from your faith, everything collapses. You cannot be true to God. You cannot believe in the right God. If you remove Jesus, you lose everything. Jesus is the dividing line. He is the linchpin which holds everything together. We, we have to be insistent upon this point. Jesus 
Christ is God in human flesh. To reject him is to reject the Father. Another huge theme throughout the Gospel of John that's included here is this, this light and darkness. That Jesus is the light who has come into the world. Verse 46. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. This harkens back yet again to Isaiah 49. It's too light a thing that you would just save this particular ethnic people. But I will make you as a light to the nation so that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus is the light of the world. Whoever comes to him will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You'll have the light of understanding who God is. That's why you and I know who God is through Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. Because as we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world, and since we have come to him, we no longer walk in darkness. Now, he came to his own, and his own rejected him. The world has loved the darkness rather than the light. And yet all those who come to him, come to the light, do so so that their works may be shown to be done in God. We will no longer walk in darkness, brothers and sisters. Now, the the same John who wrote this, the words of Jesus here about no longer walking in darkness, also wrote in 1 John, walk in the light, this, this command. So we have the indicative promise, those who come to him will no longer remain in darkness. We will walk in light. And then you have the imperative also. Walk in the light as he is in the light. No longer go to the darkness. No, no longer go to the shadows of your past light. Life, this is no longer who you are. Now you are a child of the light. Walk in the light. But those who prefer the darkness will remain there. And they will receive the judgment from God, which each of us deserves. But you might read this passage and think, well, Jesus didn't come to judge. He says so right there in verse 47 and following. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So Jesus, he came to save. He came that people would recognize who he is and place their faith in him. He didn't come to judge, and yet he says, the word I've spoken, in other words, the message I have proclaimed about my identity and how you can come before God and be right before him, this word, this message will judge you. And what does he mean, the word will judge you? I think it means something like, if a man is standing by the road with a big sign that says, stop! Don't keep going. The road is washed out. Stop. And the driver continues going. He doesn't heed the message. He doesn't heed the word. He continues going down the road in his ignorance, and he is washed away. The word which was spoken to him judged him. He ended up 
judging himself, in a sense, by not heeding the message that was given. So are all who do not heed the word of Jesus Christ. Turn. Believe in him. Trust in him. Find your hope and your joy in him. This is the message of the good news of the gospel. Do not reject it and remain in darkness and judgment. So then, the evaluation of Jesus' ministry, it is not an utter failure, as many might judge by looking upon it. Rather, we need to reevaluate our metrics for success. Rejection was a part of God's sovereign plan for His glory and for your salvation, brothers and sisters. And the message is this, life only comes through Jesus Christ. The Messiah prophesied of old and sent from the Father. Well, to close, let's return to that image of you standing before God Almighty, your Maker, on that last day as you are being evaluated. As you are being scrutinized like never before, like you're, like you're having a, an x-ray done of you which shows everything that is invisible and intangible. All your thoughts, your motives, everything that you would be afraid if it were exposed. What is your fear on that day? What is your fear in that evaluation? Are you afraid that you will be exposed as a failure? That your life didn't measure up? That you should have accomplished so much more than you have already? That you should have done more ministry? That you should have done more for Christ? That you should have been more committed? That you should have been more righteous? That you should have glorified Him more? Or maybe... You're not afraid. Maybe you are confident because you look on your life and you say, I have served the poor. I have lived for the glory of God. I've taught Sunday school. I've fed the hungry. I've given my money to the poor. And thinking on that moment of evaluation, you are confident that he is going to evaluate and you are going to pass the test. Either one of those, I would ask you to humbly set aside. Because both of those are looking in the same place. Both, both of those perspectives are looking inward to you and what you have done. Evaluating you based on your own merit. And you will utterly fail if you do that. The only metric by which we will be judged as pure and righteous is the pure and righteous Jesus Christ. Put your eyes upon him. For any and all who come in repentance of their sins and faith in Jesus Christ, when they are evaluated on that day, he will look through your file and he will see the perfect righteousness of Christ. It will be applied to you. Your thoughts, your actions, your words will be seen through the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And God will look upon you and say, Well done not because of your merit but because the merit of your brother jesus christ who died for your sins and rose from the dead rejoice in this brothers and sisters let's pray together